So I was finally behind us, and Donald Trump has prevailed. And he woke out of a cream corn coma to walk directly into a courtroom up against a certifiably insane stalking grifter who was, quote, raped by Trump. Uh, a totally impartial judge, you know, he wouldn't allow the trial to be delayed so that Trump could attend his mother-in-law's funeral or anything, but he told him he was going to eject Trump when Trump called it a witch hunt because this chick is totally believable. You don't feel like a victim. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished, which the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not, this was not sexual. It just, it, it hurt. It just, what, it just, you know. Well, I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not. I think most people rape. think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk to. <laughs> Did Trump engage in some sexy rape? Maybe that's what got him on the Iowa push. I don't know. And all the Iowans who were able to make it to the caucus, they were actually going to probably be able to get there because of their white privilege. You know, they weren't having to dig out of the snow. Um, Joy Reid from MSNBC is either a DEI ambassador or she is a uh, Georgia Jefferson, you know, <laughs> talking about her daughter's white boyfriend. Because listen to how she talks about the Iowa makeup the citizens of Iowa but you know I feel like the, the important sort of data point and, and you know Steve talks about it a lot he's he's gonna probably talk about it a little more tonight is that these, these are white Christians that this is a state that is overrepresented overrepresented by white Christians that are going to participate in these tonight. caucuses, yes. especially tonight. Um, I today, earlier today, reached out to Robert Jones, Robbie Jones, um, from the Public Religion Research Institute, knowing that we were going to talk about Iowa, and this is a hyper evangelical st white state. And he said the following to me: Iowa is about sixty-one percent white Christian. The country as a whole is approximately forty-one percent white Christian. And in Iowa, we're talking about evangelical white Christians. And he said the following. Because I asked him, what do they get out of supporting Donald Trump? Because he keeps losing, he keeps delivering losses and losses and losses. And he said the following, they see themselves as the rightful inheritors of this country. And Trump has promised to give it yeah. back to them. All the things that we think about, about electability, about, you know, what are people gaming out or mm -hmm. none of that matters when you believe that God has given you this country, that it is yours and that everyone who is not a white conservative Christian is a is a fraudulent American, is a less, a less, a less real American, then you don't care about electability. You know what the problem is with Iowa? Too many honkies and crackers. New Hampshire, and I think to the point there. that you made, Steph, I mean, it, it's the elephant in the room. She's still a brown lady that's got to try to win in a party that is deeply anti-immigrant and which accepts the notion that you can say immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. She's getting, you know, birthered by Donald Trump. Um, and I don't care how much the donor class likes her, which will yeah. ramp up a lot, the better yeah. she does in New yes. Hampshire. So it's still a challenge. I don't see how she becomes the nominee of that party with Donald Trump still around. I can't picture it happening. Maybe it could happen. Ron DeSantis' only argument for staying in it is he's the white guy that he can still make the appeal to white people. While we have and many of these honkies and crackers are keeping black congresswomen from being able to move on up in the, in the member's elevator in Congress. These are not little kinks, first of all. Racism, institutional racism, is in the DNA of this country. When you look at uh, what has taken place, look at the, our Native Americans, the genocide of Native Americans. When you look at what has taken place as it relates to African Americans, uh, the 250 years plus of enslaving African Americans, and then you look at the disparities now uh, in our community in terms of health care, unemployment, the wealth gap, housing. You can't tell me that systemic racism does not exist. It's not just a little kink. Secondly, you have personal racism, which is hard to address, but I'll give you one little story that shows you why uh, we need to understand that I don't think she really understands racism. I was walking from the House building on Capitol Hill to the Capitol and a man, a white guy, stopped me 
and told me I could not get into the member's elevator. And, you know, we have uh, pens, and I was going to vote. And he blocked me from getting into the elevator and told me I was not a member of Congress, and it was for members only. I said, sir, I'm a member of Congress. And he, I showed him my pen, and he said, whose pen did you steal? Now, this is an example of what personal racism is and how people of color constantly have to deal with this each and every day. But systemic racism is in the policies of this country. And just look at what they're trying to do in terms of eliminating diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're trying to uh, not allow for an equal and level playing field. Uh, and so it's a very dangerous uh, position that she has. Uh, she's clueless. Well, that's a shame, and I'm sorry that, that you had to deal with that, Congress. The Congresswoman dropped her subway grinder when they said, this is members only club. And they tossed the noose around her neck like they were the Lone Ranger. Um, the genocide of Native Americans. They keep talking about that, but I think we're killing them with alcohol and casinos. So what could make anyone, like maybe Venezuelans, escaping climate change, you know, for refugee status, and also escaping that 10,000% inflation of their dollar uh, while their leader chomps on empanadas while giving addresses to the nation, why would they want to migrate to the United States? And the Venezuelans who have made it here, who we've greeted with open arms, are probably truly a huddle masses right now, trying to stay warm from the cold of climate, global boiling climate change, iceberg melting, iceberg growing uh, phenomenons. The cold is too much, says Gabriel Diaz, the 38-year-old new arrival from Venezuela and dozens of others temporarily moved to the lower level of the Harold Washington Library. Because the city's windswept landing strip at Polk and Dis Plains presenting a dangerous environment for asylum seekers, temporarily forcing the suspension of the combination city and state intake center. Venezuelan asylum seeker Andres Contreras, a block down from the library, stunned to experience the bitter cold. The truth is, is that I'm not accustomed to this cold, Contreras says. I've never seen the snow before. It's beautiful, but it's too excessive, the cold you have here. You know, they're just migrating north for the winter because that's what you would do. You would leave that subtropical temperature that's around year long and just come north into the bitter cold for the winter. Sounds like they don't like the climate here in the United States. They probably should have gotten that meteorologist corn pop on Hunter's phone for that seven-day forecast, you know, when he's talking to Hunter's buddies and he's giving them the weather updates. They would have decided to stay in a warm climate like Venezuela and have a healthy diet of zoo cheetah. And that cold snap has done numbers across the nation. I mean, the Iowa caucus had a similar turnout uh, due to the weather forecast and the snow all across the area, the below zero temperatures. And it could be that they tried to get to the caucus stations by using their electric vehicles that were caught in the cold and couldn't even uh, have the energy to move. They got that debilitating cold from the cold weather. They couldn't get up and move, much like what happened in Chicago recently with their electric vehicles. Okay, Emily, thank you. That cold is also causing some big-time headaches for Chicago area owners of electric vehicles. Yes, I never thought we'd say this, yeah. but it's true. As Dane Placco reports, the low temperatures have caused some headaches for owners looking to charge their cars. Electric cars may be the way of the future, but it's clear there are some problems when it comes to charging them in Chicago's deep freeze. Oh, we got a bunch of dead robots out here. Dead robots. <laughs> <laughs> dead Teslas packed the parking lot at this Tesla supercharging station in Oak Brook, a scene mirrored at other supercharging stations around the Chicago area. Man, this is crazy. It's, it's, it's a disaster. Seriously. With temperatures falling into the negative double digits, these charging ports have stopped charging, leaving many Tesla owners stranded here in long lines since Sunday. Nothing, no juice, it's still on zero percent, and this is like three hours this morning being out here, after being out here eight hours yesterday. Has it been charging? No, not at all. It just isn't working? At all. It's just frozen, and so I'm now getting it towed to the um, Tesla service center because... That's my only option at this point. Adding to their frustration, they say, is that they're getting no help when they call Tesla for assistance. No response from Tesla. We have been suffering since yesterday uh, afternoon. These are unusually cold temperatures, but do you find this acceptable? 
No, not at all. Not really. I, I think it's less on the actual vehicle and more on the infrastructure. Tesla has not responded to our emails for comment, but an automobile expert we talked to said that the owners of all EVs should hit the battery preconditioned button on their car before attempting to charge it in extremely cold weather. In Oakbrook, Dane Placco, Fox 32 Chicago. If you have to have that EV that's saving the planet, it's probably being towed by a diesel-powered tow truck. You might want to have to take the light rail to get where you need to go. But be sure to bring some Clorox wipes or maybe a bucket of bleach and a roll of brawny because if you're riding the rails in Florida, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, get ready to celebrate with the homeless crackhead and the guy who's talking to his imaginary friend on No Pants Light Rail Day. That's right. You get to enjoy the sights and smells of every public transportation regular. And this time, without pants. Apparently, some of them are wearing fetish gear, you know, for the children on board. Sounds like the public library on a humid June day with all the pride that Cherry's Jubilee, the drag queen, can bring. I mean, it's, it won't be like protesting a cancer hospital for Palestine, but it will be a sight to behold, like a gay light pride rail parade ride. I don't know. It's, uh, it's like they'll need to gather a ton of purple-haired, perpetually outraged vegans, uh, a bunch of vegan a-holes, because th- that cancer ward is growing faster and faster than Dick Morris's house gets in his BVDs because of the uh, COVID shots and the turbo cancers. But, you know, that's going to go over like a man pretending to be a woman in a two-piece bikini or an obese lady in a G-string being put on the cover of the swimsuit edition of the Sports Illustrated magazine, which, you know, went out of business. You might get such a reaction that you have to lay off your entire staff because it actually happened. So now maybe we can get the Amazonian Lorax lady from the World Economic Forum with the painted bird beak on her face to bless the rail cars, maybe even give some good juju and send some good vibes to SI magazine, you know, when uh, atheists go, Oh, thoughts and prayers because you died I'm, or, or you're sick. I'm sending you good vibes, you know, like they're sending you uh, brain waves or something. I don't even know. But while she coughs disease X on every panelist out there and she's rubbing her hands like she's Mr. Miyagi's sister going to heal Danny LaRusso's uh, leg. She decides she's going to cough on the heads of everybody on the panel at the World Economic Forum. <laughs> Now, that lady's going to have a packed schedule because I believe Hunter Biden's going to need some of that cough blessing for his gun holster and his Form 4473. He signed that legal document stating that he wasn't on drugs when he applied for the firearms, but, eh, you know, they're going to need to drop those gun charges because there's no evidence. But then in a new court filing, the Department of Justice says that when they tried to pull the gun for evidence, Cocaine was found on the holster itself, the actual gun. So, again, no evidence? It's the Adrian Slade Show. The presidential motorcade was just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slade Show. The global elites, heads of state, captains of industry... Leaders of non-governmental organizations, Hollywood stars and celebrities and different tech uh, gurus, they all descended upon Davos for the World Economic Forum, uh, the way that they're going to reshape the world, right, and their image. <laughs> and just as it you know, went throughout with the crazy lady with the beak color on her face, coughing on it, all the panelists, um, it ended very similar <laughs> with this weird ballet thing happening outside. These people were almost naked. They're on the side of a mountain. It's completely snow covered and they want to 
illustrate climate change. But what's interesting is the person who put this on, listen to how she describes her motivation. What got her to craft this ballet that they were able to witness to close out the Davos ceremony, the World Economic Forum's big uh, committee? Um, It's really interesting because you can say that these are the motivations for why we locked down the country over COVID, why they're freaking out about climate change. Listen to this lady talk about her experience and her motivation. When I decided to do Performing Hope, and I'm smiling as I say it, uh, I was not smiling. I was at the UN meetings. I was depressed. I was worried. I was anxious and I was stressed. And I thought I need something to get me out of this. And it came in a flash. And all I could think was we need to perform hope for all of these ecosystems that are undergoing extreme threats. So the glaciers, we're here in Davos, we're here in Switzerland. We know that the Swiss glaciers have lost 10% of of the glacier in a two-year period. That's astronomically fast. She's completely overinflating that glacier uh, stat because we actually had a boat go down last year. I think it was last year, maybe in the year before last, to go witness these melting glaciers. And guess what happened? It got stuck in a glacier, <laughs> in a huge one, and they had to get pulled out of it. Um, so they're really kind of overinflating that. But apparently that's given her all types of anxiety, and she's you know just worried. And you know what would really put some calm and some, uh, some worry uh, to rest with the uh, people at Davos? Little hookers and blow, right? Am I right? Little hookers and blow. That's right. From the uh, Daily Mail, Davos debauch underbelly. How the global elite indulge in cocaine, caviar, and champagne at secret bunga bunga parties behind the scenes at the World Economic Forum. It's crazy. I mean, they're just throwing down in this hedonistic society, and we're supposed to be the ones to reshape our lives with their insane cocaine fueled ideas. Once a year, global elites from all sectors attend a five-day conference in the snow-capped town of Davos, which is supplemented by caviar, champagne, and all types of debauchery after hard work is over. You know, I mean, once you're done working, you got to get some hookers and blow. The World Economic Forum 2024 is kicking off with world leaders and business executives convening for discussions and events surrounding the most prominent issues of the day. The theme this year is Rebuilding trust. <laughs> trust that you're going to get some good uh, white lines and pay, pay for some high-quality AWS and will be attended by t- uh, 3,000 guests. But when they descend on the small alpine resort of Davos in Switzerland, attendees do more than just discuss global conflicts, the economy, and the evolution of technology. They bond and build business bridges with one another <laughs> at A-list parties. CEOs and dignitaries mingle over caviar bumps, $1,000 bottles of champagne, and uh, luminous parties that only the elite in the world are able to be invited to. (laughs) It's crazy. Anthony Scaramucci, remember that guy? He was in the Trump administration for like a brief minute. Yeah, he's out there putting on some of these parties. One person who attends the forum often told the New York Post, you can almost smell the magic of the place when you're there. Everyone's got an agenda. And you never know who you're going to run into when you come out of a restroom. It could be Bill Gates. (laughs) Watch out for him. He'll hit you up with some fake meat and a vax. You're around some of the most smartest people in the world. But one thing you learn is they're not always so smart. (laughs) Of course. That's why we don't want them designing society for us. Skybridge Capital founder and chairman Anthony Scaramucci, again, who was in the Trump administration for like a week, said, if you look up name dropping in the dictionary, you'll see a photo of Davos. But you know what? I've never left the mountain without learning something important or making a new trend and a new friend with that new trend. Scaramucci, who has attended Davos for years, is hosting a wine soiree at the Hotel Europe during the conference where bottles of wine and champagne will be sent back nearly a thousand dollars a bottle. In the past, Scaramucci has had Matt Damon, Richard Branson, hmm, Andrea Bosselli and Jill Biden at his WF parties. And one of the world heavyweights, like Tesla CEO founder Elon Musk, previously declined to attend the, wor- to attend the event in his own words because it sounded like it's going to be boring AF. <laughs> and he laughed about it. He's probably right. Last year, other high-end events and selective uh, soirees organized after the talks ended 
for the day after they offered their guest, uh, you know, more than just alcohol. <laughs> psychedelics were offered. A company that offers psychedelics offered people micro doses of magic mushrooms to delegates during the uh, 40th, 40th session and speaker uh, Medical Psychedelics House of Davos. In 2022, Maria Velkova, one of the organizers of the Psychedelic House of Davos, said, quote, we spark curiosity with the neon sign out front. And once people get curious and brave enough to come down here, they realize that this isn't some underground electronic dance party. And that sounds like a red light district with lots of crazy <laughs> magic shrooms. Again, I want my uh, world designers, the leaders of the world, to uh, be hopped up on psychedelic shrooms and cocaine when they're talking about making 15-minute cities and making us fly four times a year and eat bug sandwiches. They find themselves meeting world-renowned scientists, clinicians, policymakers, people from for-profit and non-profit sectors, and experts from leading academic institutions. In 2016, five Swiss soldiers deployed to the World Economic Forum in Davos were sent home after testing positive for cocaine, the Swiss Army said. Seven more were disciplined for cannabis consumption. After all, 12 returning from leave were suspected of intoxication. Quote, all 12 soldiers consume cannabis and five of them additionally consume cocaine, Swiss Army spokesman uh, said. Five were immediately sent home, the others receiving disciplinary punishment during their duty. Other debaucheries were also present at Davos. Last year, it was reported that sex workers who descended on the snowy Swiss town were charging $2,500 a night for their services at the forum. This year, politicians from across the globe are expected to attend the forum, including Chinese Premier Ling Kuang, French President Emmanuel Macron, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Oh, that's great to know. <laughs> they had Lenny Kravitz playing there. I mean, I... I, I, are you going to go my way? Uh, you can go the way of hookers and blow. So that's what's going on at the World Economic Forum. And we had some interesting speakers outside of the lady who was coughing all over everyone and uh, the ballet of anxiety over the climate. You know, we're going to save the climate by showing a ballet on a snowy mountaintop. Um, you had some other in interesting individuals and they had some interesting ideas some interesting premises, um, including one individual <laughs> who was talking about the uh, ecocide. She's worried that farming and fishing is going to destroy the planet and it should be recognized as a serious crime. Listen to this insane rambling from this nut job. I mean, ecocide as a word is becoming more, it's becoming better known around the world. And the concept is generally mass damage and destruction of nature. Um, but legally speaking, um, what our organization and other collaborators aim to do is to have this recognized legally as a serious crime. Because one of the issues that sort of pervades all of this discussion is that we have a kind of cultural, very ingrained habit of not taking damage to nature as seriously as we take damage to people and property. Um, and that, I mean, you know, if you're campaigning for human rights, at least you know mass murder, torture, all of these things are serious crimes. But there's no equivalent in the environmental space. Um, and so, and, and you know, unlike a, an international crime like genocide that in, involves a specific intent, with ecocide, what we see is actually what people are trying to do, what businesses are trying to do is make money, is, you know, is farm, is fish, is do all of these things that are, um, you know, producing energy and so on um, as well. But what's it, what's missing is the awareness and the conscience around the side effects, around the collateral damage that happens with that. So you're going to be punished for fishing or farming. <laughs> That's going to work out swimmingly because it's really working out with the Dutch farmers. It's really working out in Germany where they're driving tractors through the streets in rebellion of all the different ways that they're being hampered by fertilizer uh, restrictions and all types of things like that. These people are nuts. I mean, you've got to farm. We've got to have food. You can fish. Um, I don't know what the situation is with that, but that shows you the level of insanity that's coming out of these people. Um, and they're still talking about a new world order. Um, just listen to this guy, WEF President Brindy. That order seems to know, know, uh, not be uh, the order anymore. We are on the way to a new order, so we are between orders. Uh, 
Do you agree with that? Or are there ways of uh, what are we able to keep on the positive side from the old order to bring into a new world order? And how can we avoid that that new world order uh, becomes like a jungle growing back and we rather uh, have an order based on international law and the principles that have brought us prosperity and uh, freedom uh, for decades? I guess and maybe this is the the old um, kind of teacher in me coming out. I think of this a little bit more about a transition of eras rather than a transition of orders, but the two are kind of cousins of one another. The reason I draw the distinction is because I don't think the international order built after 1945 is getting replaced wholesale with some new order. Um, it will obviously evolve as it, as it has evolved multiple times over the decades since 1945. But I do think in a, in a more sharp and distinctive way, we are moving into a new era. And that's what I talked about in my remarks, that we are, you know, the post-Cold War era has come to a close. We're at the start of something new. We have the capacity to shape what that looks like. And at the heart of it will be many of the core principles and core institutions of the existing order adapted uh, for the challenges that we face today. Again, the New World Order is based off of what happened at the end of World War II. These people are the same people. They're the, the Fabian socialists who think that they can command and control a global order. And they've been looking to do that since the beginning of World War I. <laughs> and that's what we're looking at. Except for they've got crazy ideas. We still have John Kerry out there, the swift boat moron. I don't even know how he's taken seriously, but he somehow can fly out and uh, in his private jet emitting all types of carbon. Maybe he's going to buy carbon credits, you know, and we can push the carbon into the ground. And then you plebes get to get, you know, carbon subsidies. Hey, thanks there, big guy. Um, thanks for the for the kickback to, you know, kick the crumbs down to the peasants down here. He's going to go up there and talk about how we need to get rid of fossil fuels again. He's an insane, swift-boating communist. That paragraph is that we must transition away from fossil fuels. Remember, we could not get a resolution between phase-out, phase-down in Glasgow. So they want us working on wind and solar, which we've talked about how those don't work. The wind windmills are out there chopping up birds and the solar panels are out there, uh, you know, melting down, uh, causing birds to just evaporate in the air because of the extreme heat emitted from it and how they go, uh, they go obsolete very quickly. And it is better to just dump them in a landfill than to try to recycle them because it's more expensive to recycle. It's just, it doesn't work just like the EVs. We just talked about that earlier in the opening monologue where the EVs, it's so cold that the electric batteries just cannot work. And so they're pushing their cars around while everybody else who's stopping in and filling up with you know, gasoline, they're back on the road within seconds. This is the insanity of these people. But then they have to put their thumb on the scale and they have to monitor everything. So we're going to be tracking people through digital currency, which Donald Trump has gotten up there and said he's going to stop. Ron DeSantis has gotten up there and said he's going to stop. In fact, I think they issued a ban on digital currency recognition in the state of Florida. I think when you get into the minutiae and, and the ideas behind central digital currency, it's really frightening because it's very trackable and very programmable. They can turn it on. They can turn it off. They can approve purchases, disapprove purchases, target certain individuals. That's what Operation, uh, what was it called? It was the one with the uh, chokehold, Operation Chokehold, with different pawn shops and gun stores, and you know they were basically freezing financial transactions. So listen to this individual uh, at the World Economic Forum talking about digital currency and the climate emergency. We're developing through technology, an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. So a carbon footprint tracker that they're going to be able to use. And I guarantee if they have central bank digital currency, they can use that in, a, in conjunction with your carbon tracker 
to address carbon footprint. Maybe you're using too much electricity, too much heat in your home, too much AC on a on a, sun, a hot sunny day. That's these are the things we have to worry about. And you've got the World Economic uh, the World Health Organization uh, leader at the World Economic Forum talking about the next pandemic, Disease X. I wonder if the X means X for what Elon Musk has done with Twitter. Is that the disease? But listen to him talk about the new pandemic to be worried about. After we started putting a, a placeholder, you know, the first that came was uh, in the disease X is, is COVID. So we have experience now <clears throat> and we are preparing based on that experience. A lot of assessment has been done by independent panels and, 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 and experts. And based on their recommendation, Many uh, initiatives have, we have already started many initiatives. And then the other key in order to have better prepared and to address the disease X is the pandemic agreement. Mm. The pandemic agreement can bring all the experience, all the challenges that we have faced and all the solutions into one. And that agreement can help us to prepare for the future in, in a better way because this is about a common enemy. And without a shared response, starting from the preparedness, <laughs> it, you know, we will face the same problem as, as, as COVID. And deadline for the pandemic agreement is May 2024. And, and deadline for the pandemic agreement is May 2024. And, and member states are negotiating. This is between countries. Um, and I hope they will deliver uh, this pandemic agreement by that time, by on the deadline. So disease X is going to be the new pandemic. Remember, these are the same people. World Economic Forum, John Hopkins University, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They were the ones that conducted the Event 201 pandemic training drill that they had this big conference, World Economic Forum style conference in New York. In November 2019, right before the actual pandemic. So I don't know if we're looking at some disease X pandemic in May, but it sounds to me like the real disease X is actual X, formerly known as Twitter, according to these people at the World Economic Forum. <laughs> so we're back to the big problem of misinformation because narratives have been crushed. Lies that have been perpetuated, such as Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police officer being killed with a fire extinguisher blow to the head during the January 6th riots when he really died of a stroke days later, can be propagated. And now those are being deflated. You know, lies like that our, our president was, uh, you know, uh, engaged in golden showers with Russian prostitutes. Yeah, those lies that keep getting pushed. Migrants being whipped by Border Patrol or migrants being drowned in the Rio Grande, where it was Texas government that was keeping the Border Patrol from saving these children when they died an hour earlier before anybody got there. All those fake lies, fake narratives are being pushed. And you have, M you have NBC out there, disinformation po poses an unprecedented threat to democracy in the U.S., in 2024, according to researchers, technologists, and political scientists. So everybody that was at Davos is in agreement that that's the case. And then you've got, listen to this. This is Joe Scarborough. Four cops are dead because of Trump's January 6th riots. Ask their widows and children if Trump was a law and order president. Again, these are lies. That's misinformation. No officers were killed. Absolutely none of them. And... That's, that's what I'm talking about. This is an MSNBC commentator spitting out lies. I heard that lie about the Capitol Police officers being killed from my local news media every day at 5 p.m. for months, even though I knew for months that they didn't. So your average person is getting a bunch of BS, and they want to prop up those institutions, the government lying about uh, covid being, you know, not being from a lab, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff they want to lie about and control that information. So now we have the heir to the Soros throne 
Alex Soros, George Soros's son. Listen to this orator. Listen to this well-spoken orator of information and knowledge. You know, if this is the, the future of Soros open society, we might be able to, to defeat this. Listen to this guy. That that's the, I don't think that that's the fundamental. I don't think the technology is the fundamental issue uh, in, in democracy. Democracy is messy. I mean, you know, democracy is about contestation of ideas. It's about uh, plurality. Um, it's about people having different truths, actually. Now, um, fundamentally, uh, how society lives together um, civically um, in those in those contestations um, is you know is obviously uh, is obviously um, you know quite uh, quite uh, you know quite tricky. But I think that if we play too much on this disinformation card, we're taking the responsibility away from ourselves to actually create a narrative that inspires people to vote and to believe, uh, you know, in, um, uh, in, uh, in democracy and democratic um, institutions. And on the institutional part, I think that we can talk about uh, institutions as these abstract things, but institutions are also about people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, know, um, you know, we just heard this, this, this point about untrustworthy people, and we talked about things in the United States like, you know, like um, checks and balances, which aren't written anywhere, but are customs. And one man, Donald Trump, literally came in and just took that, you know, took that, took that all away. Um, you know, so, um, you know, so, um, you know, but when I see this, you know, when I look at this, um, you know, um, you know, uh, more globally regarding, regarding, you know, regarding democracy, I also say to myself, when was this great time that everybody got along so well and, you know, Things were going so so great. I mean, I think you know, um, um, you know the, um, you know, I think that we really have to be careful here, in you know, in this nostalgia uh, for a time, uh, you know, for a time past, because a lot of the reactions we're seeing in society are actually reactions to positive, uh, to positive things like, you know, like equality uh, for women, um, you know, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, and greater diversity. Jeez, come on, get it out there, man. He's like, uh, 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 uh and uh, uh, uh. The guy is is well spoken. Is John Fetterman immediately after his stroke? Although Fetterman's coming around quite nicely these days, but I mean, and, and again, he brings up misinformation because the Soros narratives are being debunked and allowed to be debunked on open source platforms like Twitter. Or X now. So disease X is X to them. And that's one of the things that we have to worry about is, you know, are we going to allow them to take hold of information? So there was some voices of reason that stepped up and showed up for the World Economic Forum to push back on their globalist and push back or globalist efforts and to push back on their narratives of, uh, you know, uh, collectivism and, fascism, you know, the public-private corporation, government uh, symbiote uh, idea of Great Reset and what have you. Listen to this. This is first uh, a gentleman from the uh, Heritage Foundation. He went there and dropped this bit of science. The kind of person, and I'll be candid here because I think I've been invited here to be candid, the kind of person who will come into the next conservative administration is going to be governed by one principle, and that is destroying the grasp that political elites and unelected technocrats have over the average person. And if I may, I will be candid and say that the agenda that every single member of the administration needs to have is to compile a list of everything that's ever been proposed at the World Economic Forum and object (laughs) all of them wholesale. Anyone not prepared to do that and take away this power of the unelected bureaucrats and give it back to the American people is unprepared to be part of the next conservative administration. Amen. That's Kevin Roberts from Heritage Foundation, and he went in guns blazing, targeting the World Economic Forum directly. Now, this is going to blow your mind, because the other individual who stepped up in this was a a gentleman by the name of Javier Mele. He is the new president of Argentina. So we've heard about this guy in videos where he's slashing all types of bureaucratic offices. You know, there's one video where he's going through 
all the Department of uh, Feminism and Women's Studies, gone. Department of, you know, all gender ideology, gone. And he's going down the list of all these departments in the Argentinian government. And they're, you know, their inflation is what, a thousand percent or something like that? Ten thousand percent? Their economy's in the crap. They're completely uh, overridden by socialist ideology. And he's turning back the clock on all that. He's turning back the ideas on all that. And it's interesting because uh, when you listen to this guy, he's, it's a homily. He's dropping knowledge like you wouldn't believe right there in the middle of the World Economic Forum. He, and he's coming with receipts. He's coming with information. He's coming with a, a wealth of understanding of the ideology that he believes in. He's not just showing up saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Republican and then doing whatever. He's coming in because he's obviously uh, internalized this and he knows it's a fundamental principle to him. So listen to, to first how he addresses the World Economic Forum. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Today I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others, and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one better place than us, Argentines, to testify to these two points. <laughs> That's incredible. He goes on to kind of give a, a, a little bit of a history lesson of how Argentina fits into the overall world's population's uh, uh, beneficial reward reaping from capitalism since the 1800s and uh, how it lifts all the boats. It, it lifts all the poor areas throughout the globe. They all benefit from the ideas of capitalism and libertarianism. And he puts down some, some receipts here. He puts down some knowledge. I could play this entire thing. It's like 25 minutes long. I'm trying to give you some good clips from it. That'll blow your mind. But if this, if this is the future of Argentina, some of us might want to move down there. It's Argentina. It's like make Argentina Florida again or something like that. Speaking of which, Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the race. Thank God for somebody like Ron DeSantis to be in the party. Our future is Ron DeSantis, Thomas Massey, Chip Roy. You know, uh, I can go down the list of some of the great concern. Bob Good. I can go down the list of some of the great conservative uh, members of Congress and uh, governors and, and, and individuals who are going to be ste stepping up to the plate here soon to take the party forward. Um, but yeah, he has dropped out and he's endorsed Donald Trump. Um, but we'll talk about that another time. So listen to him, listen to Javier Mele talk about the history of, you know, of how Argentina went down, but then, you know, all the implementation of capitalism throughout Time has lifted all types of boats. Now, it's not just that capitalism brought about an explosion in wealth from the moment it was adopted as an economic system. But also, if you look at the data, what you will see is that growth continues to accelerate throughout the whole period. And throughout the whole period between the year zero and the year 1800, the per capita GDP growth rate remained stable at around 0.02% annually, so almost no growth. Starting in the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution, the compound annual growth rate was 0.66%. Uh, and um, at that rate, in order to double per capita GDP, you would need some 107 years. Now, if you look at the period between the year 1900 and the year 1950, the growth rate accelerated to 1.66% a year. So you no longer need 107 years to double 
double per capita GDP, but 66. And if you take the period between 1950 and the year 2000, you will see that the growth rate was 2.1%, again the CAGR, which would mean that in only 33 years we could double the world's per capita GDP. This trend, far from stopping, remains well alive today. If we take the period between the year 2000 and 2023, the growth rate again accelerated to 3% a year, which means that we could double uh, world per capita GDP in just 23 years. That said, when you look at per capita GDP since the year 1800 and until today, what you will see is that after the Industrial Revolution, global per capita GDP multiplied by over 15 times, which meant uh, a boom in growth that lifted 90% of the global population out of poverty. We should remember that by the year 1800, about 95% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, and that figure dropped to 5% by the year 2020 prior to the pandemic. The conclusion is obvious. Far from being the cause of our problems, free trade capitalism as an economic system is the only instrument we have to end hunger, poverty, and extreme poverty across our planet. It's amazing. Now he's in the belly of the beast and he's going to show that what they're advocating for with this uh, command and control global economy and global governance, he lays out why it's not good and why it's a threat to Western democracy. Just listen to this. Therefore, since there is no doubt that free enterprise capitalism is uh, superior in productive terms, the left-wing doxa has attacked capitalism, alleging matters of morality saying, uh, that's what the detractors claim, that it's unjust. They say that capitalism is evil because it's individualistic and that collectivism is good because it's altruistic, of course, with the money of others. So they therefore advocate for social justice. But this concept, which in the developed world became fashionable in recent times, in my country has been a constant in political discourse for over 80 years. The problem is that social justice is not just and it doesn't contribute either to the general well-being. Quite on the contrary, it's an intrinsically unfair idea because it's violent. It's unjust because the state is financed through tax, and taxes are collected coercively. Or can any one of us say that they voluntarily pay taxes? Which means that the state is financed through coercion, and that the higher the tax burden, the higher the coercion, and the lower the freedom. Those who promote social justice, the advocates, start with the idea that the uh, whole economy is a pie that can be shared differently. But that pie is not a given. It's wealth that is generated in what Israel Kirzner, for instance, calls a market discovery process. If the goods or services offered by a business are not wanted, the uh, business will fail unless it adapts to what the market is demanding. If they make a good quality product at an attractive price, they will do well and produce more. So the market is a discovery process in which the uh, capitalists will find the right path as they uh, move forward. But if the state punishes capitalists when they're successful and gets in the way of the discovery process, they will destroy their incentives. And the consequence is that they will produce less, the pie will be smaller, and this will harm society as a whole. Collectivism, by inhibiting these discovery processes and hindering the appropriation of discoveries ends up binding the hands of entrepreneurs and prevents them from uh, offering better goods and services at a better price. It's just, it's singing to me, right? It's just singing. So now listen to him break down what libertarianism actually is. What is it that we mean when we talk about libertarianism? And let me quote the words of the greatest authority on freedom in Argentina, Professor Alberto Benegas Lich Jr., who says that libertarianism is the unrestricted respect for the life project of others based on the principle of non-aggression, in defense of the right to life, liberty and property. It's fundamental institutions being private property, markets free from state intervention, free competition, the division of labor, and social cooperation, as part of which success is achieved only by serving others with goods of better quality or at a better price. In other words, capitalists 
successful business people are social benefactors who, far from appropriating the wealth of others, contribute to the general well-being. Ultimately, a successful entrepreneur is a hero. And this is the model that we are advocating for the Argentina of the future, a model based on the fundamental principles of libertarianism, the defense of life, of freedom, and of property. So now that he's set the table on what libertarianism is, now he's going to give out another dire warning to the West, to the developed West, those that have some sort of democratic government um, like our representative constitutional republic here in the United States. It is worth asking why. I say that the West is in danger. And I say this precisely because in those of our countries that should defend the values of the free market, private property, and the other institutions of libertarianism, sectors of the political and economic establishment, some due to mistakes in the theoretical framework and others due to a greed for power, are undermining the foundations of libertarianism, opening up the doors to socialism and potentially condemning us to poverty, misery, it should never be forgotten that socialism is always and everywhere an impoverishing phenomenon that has failed in all countries where it's been tried out. It's been a failure economically, socially, culturally, and it also murdered over a hundred million human beings. The essential problem in the West today is not just that we need to come to grips with those who, even after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the overwhelming empirical evidence continue to advocate for impoverishing socialism. But there's also our own leaders, thinkers, and academics who, relying on a misguided theoretical framework, undermine the fundamentals of the system that has given us the greatest expansion of wealth and prosperity in our history. The theoretical framework to which I refer is that of neoclassical economic theory, which designs a set of instruments that unwillingly, or without meaning to, ends up um, serving the intervention by the state, socialism, and social degradation. The problem with neoclassicals is that the model they fell in love with does not map reality, so they put down their mistakes to supposed market failures rather than reviewing the premises of the model. On the pretext of a supposed market failure, regulations are introduced which only create distortions in the price uh, system, um, prevent economic calculus, and therefore also prevent saving investment and growth. This problem lies mainly in the fact that not even supposedly libertarian economists understand what the market is, because if they did understand, it would quickly be seen that it's impossible for there to be something along the lines of market failures. The market is not a mere graph describing a curve of supply and demand. The market is a mechanism for social cooperation where you voluntarily exchange ownership rights. Therefore, based on this definition, talking about a market failure is an oxymoron. There are no market failures. If transactions are voluntary, the only context in which there can be a market failure is if there is coercion. And the only one that is able to coerce generally is the state, which holds a monopoly on violence. So he focuses in on now talking about examples of how Marxism has pitted itself or pitted certain uh, sides against each other so that it can be uh, embraced. So Marxism can be embraced. And he's talking about the male versus women feminist kind of uh, uh, divide that has been created by the left so that we can have some sort of state authoritarian solution or uh, some sort of program implemented. He goes on to blast that. But whatever you want to correct a supposed market failure inexorably, as a result of not knowing what the market is or as a result of having fallen in love with a failed model, you are opening up the doors to socialism and condemning people to poverty. However, faced with the theoretical demonstration that state intervention is harmful and the empirical evidence that it has failed couldn't have been otherwise, the solution to be proposed by collectivists is not greater freedom, but rather greater regulation, which creates a downward spiral of, um, a spiral of regulations until we're all poorer and the life of all of us depends on a bureaucrat sitting in a luxury 
uh, office. Given the dismal failure of collectivist models and the undeniable advances in the free world, socialists were forced to change their agenda. They left behind the class struggle based on the economic system and replaced this with other supposed social conflicts which are just as harmful to life as a community and to economic growth. The first of these new battles was the ridiculous and un unnatural fight between man and woman. Libertarianism already provides for equality uh, of these sexes. The uh, co cornerstone of our creed says that all humans are created equal, that we all have the same unalienable rights granted by the Creator, including uh, life, freedom, and ownership. All that this radical feminism agenda has led to is greater state intervention to hinder the economic process, giving a job to bureaucrats who have not contributed anything to society. It's incredible. And now, I mean, he, he sounds like he's talking to us here in America. But listen, he also goes on with climate change and totally destroys that entire thing as well. Another conflict presented by socialists is that of humans against nature, claiming that we human beings damage the planet which should be protected at all costs, even going as far as advocating for population control mechanisms or the bloody um, abortion agenda. Unfortunately, these harmful ideas have taken a strong hold in our society. Neo-Marxists have managed to co-opt the uh, common sense of the Western world, and this they have achieved by appropriating the uh, media, culture, universities, and also international organizations. The latter case is the most serious one, probably, because these are institutions that have enormous influence on political and economic decisions of the countries that make up the multilateral organizations. Fortunately, there's more and more of us who are daring to make our voices heard, because we see that if we don't truly and decisively fight against these ideas, the only possible fate is for us to have increasing levels of state regulation, socialism, poverty, and less freedom, and therefore uh, will be um, having worse standards of living. I mean, I'm in 100% agreement with this. You have to be you have to understand something. And I, I learned this. It really came clear to me, at least today on Sunday um, at church. Uh, and, you know, I'm not trying to get all biblical on you, but you think of this. Creation was perfect. It was creation that was so perfect that God was in constant fellowship with his beings, Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the morning. And all we had to do is not step over that line and embrace the uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And we did that. And when we did that, we brought sin into the world. We brought in natural disasters. We brought in disease. We brought in, outside of just crime and theft and, and uh, you know murder and all the other things that come with us personally through sin, creation was also uh, tainted when Satan was put down on earth. So... The idea of climate change is almost the idea of saying, okay, we're going to step in and fix sin. We're going to stop drought. We're going to stop famine. We're going to stop, uh, you know, floods and, and weather events because we're going to stop you from allowing you to farm. We're going to stop you from driving your vehicles and going about. We're going to have co complete power over you to stop the effects of what sin was brought into the world to do. Same thing with birth defects and things. You know, we were made in the image of God, but then some people, because of sin, came into the world with defects or disease and what have you, and God uses that to his glory, to take that power away from Satan and go, look, I'm going to raise this person up and do great things with them to where they're going to be impacted or they're going to impact others. Um, so God always wins. But we cannot look at the fact that, oh, well, you know, this baby might have a birth defect. So let's go ahead and abort them. You know, you're not getting a perfect baby out the womb. You know, let's eliminate Down syndrome, right? This is what they do on the state side. State wants to depopulate. Well, guess what? We were told to subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Subduing the earth meant being a good steward, but overseeing the animals, overseeing the, you know, vegetation. But then... Grow, uh, using these animals for our sustenance and, you know, so being fruitful and multiplying, 
the population of the United the, the population of the world can fit within the borders of Texas and still have room. But we've got these people out here going, oh, well, you know, we got to depopulate and, and we're going to work on, you know, man-made d- pandemics, man-made uh, viruses that we're going to have man-made vaccines for so that we can stay ahead of some other authoritarian government that's going to weaponize bioweapons. I mean, you can you see what I'm talking about? This is the evil of mankind. And w- there's no way to to regulate some of this as far as uh, climate change goes. That's not going to happen. And we don't even know. It's, it's mostly, from what I can tell, it's solar. It's, it's solar cycles that are affecting the weather on the planet. That's what happens. It's the sun. Sun emits heat. Sun might, you know, emit a little less heat, a little more heat, might have solar flares. I, you know, there's polar ice caps melting on Mars. The Mars rover didn't put out a bunch of emissions into the atmosphere to cause those to melt, but yet they are melting and it's not because of us. And so ultimately we have to look at it that they're stepping in as their role as the authoritarian God, the state. And that's why they hate Christianity. That's why they're spying on Latin masses. That's why they're going after Christian organizations. That you're the domestic white terrorist because you believe in, you know, your Bible and your guns. You 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 cling to your guns. It's that's what's happening. And we we we've got this guy in Argentina speaking truth and trying to warn everybody we need to roll this back. And he leaves with his coup de gras. Listen how he ends his speech. It's awesome. And now keep in mind, I recorded this part. From the original translation, they used AI to take his voice and translate all those previous clips that we just played in his own voice, which is pretty amazing as far as technology goes. But that's why this next clip sounds different than all the rest. Um, This is the original translation. Uh, Just listen to this. It's just it's just a gospel. Fortunately, more of us dare to raise our voices as we see that if we don't confront these ideas head on, the only possible destiny is more state, more regulation, more socialism, more poverty, less freedom, and consequently, a worse quality of life. Unfortunately, the West has already started down this path. To many, it may sound ridiculous to suggest that the West has embraced socialism, but this view is only ridiculous if one limits themselves to the traditional economic definition of socialism, which states that it is an economic system where the state owns the means of production. In my opinion, this definition needs to be updated to reflect the current circumstances from my perspective. Today, states don't need to control means of production to control every aspect of individuals' lives. With tools such as monetary issuance, debt, subsidies, interest rate control, price controls, and regulations to correct alleged market failures, they can control the destinies of millions of human beings. This is how we have reached the point where, with different names or forms, good parts of the politically accepted offers in most Western countries are generally collectivist variants. Whether they openly declare themselves as communists, fascists, Nazis, socialists, social democrats, national socialists, Christian democrats, Keynesians, neo-Keynesians, progressives, populists, nationalists, or globalists. In the end, there are no substantive differences. Everyone argues that the state should control all aspects of individuals' lives. All define a model contrary to the one that led humanity to the most spectacular progress in its history. We are here today to extend an invitation to the other Western countries to resume the path towards prosperity, economic freedom, limited government, and unrestricted respect for private property are vital for economic growth. The impoverishment that collectivism produces is not a fantasy, nor is it fatalism. It is a reality that Argentinians have known very well for at least 100 years. Because we have already experienced it, we have already gone through this. Because as I said before, since we decided to abandon the model of freedom that had made us rich, we are trapped in a downward spiral where we are getting poorer every day. 
This is, we have already experienced it ourselves, and we are here to warn you about what can happen if Western countries who became rich with the model of freedom continue on this path of servitude. The Argentine case is the empirical proof that regardless of wealth, natural resources, population capability, education level, or the amount of gold bars in the central bank's coffers, these factors do not guarantee success. If measures are adopted that hinder the free functioning of markets, free competition, free price systems, if trade is hindered, if private property is attacked, the only possible destination is poverty. To summarize, I want to convey a message to all entrepreneurs present and those who are not, but are following us from around the globe, whether they're here or not, physically. Don't be intimidated by the political caste or the parasites who live off the state. Don't yield to a political class that only wants to prolong its power and preserve its privileges. You are social benefactors. You are heroes. You are the creators of the most extraordinary era of prosperity we have ever experienced. Don't let anyone say ambition is immoral. If you earn money, it's because you provide a superior product, better price, contributing to well-being. Do not yield to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story and know that from today you have Argentina as an unconditional ally. Thank you very much and long live freedom, damn it. And that's basically where I'm at. Long live freedom, damn it. <laughs> so that is what's going on in the world. There are leaders stepping up. We've got who we've got up in Switzerland. We've got, uh, we had Bolsonaro in Brazil, although they ousted him and then barred him from running elections from a court for uh, until 2030. Odd time to make him unavailable to or unavailable to be able to run. And they also tried to put him in jail, kind of like what they're doing to Donald Trump. Of course, now Trump is probably going to be the GOP nominee now that Ron DeSantis is out of the race. And so we're going to have to hope. Trump said he was against digital currency. Trump said he's against globalism. He's saying he's going to fight all of this. Let's see. Let's see where it goes. The people have spoken. I did a substack. Go look it up. A bitter pill after Ohio, uh, Iowa because I didn't see where Ron DeSantis can survive the upcoming two primaries and then make a dent in Super Tuesday if Iowa, of all places, who picked Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee and, you know, uh, up against the Mitt Romney and John McCain, if we're going to have Iowa choose the most conservative person like they did in 2016 where they picked Ted Cruz over Donald Trump, but yet Donald Trump went on to win, then they're not picking Ron DeSantis. They're picking Trump. I don't see where he loses momentum. And so we got to hope that Trump is going to step up like Javier Millet and uh, hire Bolsonaro or Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, you know, you've got the, uh, the what's her name over in Italy. You've, you've got individuals stepping up that the, the globe is recognizing. Germany is running the, uh, the government out with, with their farmers and they're riding tractors and combines through the streets. You know, you've got the Dutch farmers railing against the government because of what they did with regulating the type of fertilizers it can use, um, destroying their crops. The movement to push back is happening. Now, whether or not we make that happen quicker, I don't know. We'll have to see. But it's on the move. And thank God for people like Javier Melee. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.